we're starting a brand new series right now. And uh, if you haven't been around Grace uh, for a while, um, we generally go through books of the Bible. We take a couple of breaks a year to do something different, but we did that in the Advent time for Christmas, and we did that during uh, the first four weeks. We do a four-week series at the beginning of January every, every year. And so today is the fifth week. And so we're beginning a brand new series by jumping back into the book of Romans. Uh, at the very beginning, I told you that we would spend 40 weeks in Romans, kind of pulling out and teasing what, what Paul has written to the church in Rome. And so we're going to continue in chapter 10 today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. Uh, it'll also be on the screen. Uh, Romans chapter 10. Let's look at the first two verses. We'll come back and look at them because there's a whole lot here. Verse 1 starts like this. Brothers and sisters... My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. All right, let's take a look at this. Um, He starts with uh, this phrase, brothers and sisters, and it's so important. Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus, and I know not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. I know not everybody here is a Christian. And so I'll talk to you first. I want you to think about your life and I want you to think about the people that you belong to. Because when we became Christians, and this is what happens to us Christians, when we become Christians, we not only come from a family that's an earthly family, but then we begin, we begin a new journey and that is with our Christian family, right? And that Christian family is something different. Our identity changes. We move from not being just a bunch of people who come to the same church to actually being brothers and sisters in Christ. There is something that Paul does for us here that's super important for our day today, and that's this. Just like in the first century when he wrote, there were multiple ways in which you could define yourself within the Roman world. Paul was a Jew, an Israelite. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, and he was also a Roman citizen. And so all of those things gave him certain privileges and certain rights. And in the same way in our world, just like their world, we have rich people, we have poor people, we have people of one race, we have people of the next race. Rome was an international or a worldwide city. It was a place of commerce and culture. It was, it was the New York City of its day. And so because it had all of these different people and all of these different definitions, Paul wanted those who were in Christ to realize their primary identity was not their politics or the level of money they have or their race or their background or their family of origin. It's that in Christ, we are transformed into brothers and sisters. Now, you may not know every person in the room, but you also don't maybe know all of your cousins either. And just like your natural family, you got some weird cousins. And, right? I mean, you do. You got weird Aunt Jan. Uh, Jan. You know, she's a strange person. You're going to find that in the church too. You're going to have some strange brothers and sisters. You're going to go, yeah. Uh, but, but, but at the end of the day, underlying all of that is that we are family. That this is how we identify ourselves first, as Christians and followers of Jesus and brothers and sisters together. He says, brothers and sisters, so he's writing to Christians. And he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, the Jewish people, remember he's also Jewish, is that they may be saved, that they may be saved. Now, let me talk about this first word up here that we're gonna highlight, and that is the word desire. Um, desire is central to uh, Christian identity. In other words, if we were to take and we were to compare and contrast Eastern faith with Western faith, if we were to take, let's just say Buddhism and compare it with Christianity, a couple of things just pop out. First of all, the concepts or the goals of Buddhism and Christianity are mutually exclusive. They're very, very different. 
Uh, for example, in Buddhism, the goal is, and this is why you've got the Om, this is why you've got all of this, and it is an empty, the chanting, the meditations are designed specifically to empty yourself of desire. And the purpose for that is that we would no longer crave and be materialistic or be angry or be, we would be actually empty. And at some point, we come to some kind of cosmic consciousness, which allows us to, uh, you know, somehow um, attain to nirvana. It's very different than what Christian faith teaches, which Christian faith teaches that we don't empty ourselves with desire. We actually use our desire and magnify our desire. And what does that mean? It means that often the desires that we have in this world right now fall short of God's desire for our heart. Like, for example, example, C.S. Lewis describes in in his book called The Weight of Glory. He's one of my favorite writers. And Lewis writes, and he says, um, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Let me just pause right there. I'll finish the quote in a second. But he's basically saying that most people don't have super strong desires. They have desires that actually fall short of their original intention, which is to bless you, to make you like Jesus, and to make you whole. For example, you might have the desire for beauty. In other words, you might be a a person who says, I value beauty extraordinarily. And that's important, right? That's important. Beauty's important, right? So what do we mean by that? Well, beauty comes in all kinds of forms. It can come in the beauty of a woman. It can come in the beauty of a man. But it can also come in the beauty of nature. It can come, I love, I love beauty and I love Chicago. I went to college there. I love the architecture and the buildings in Chicago. I can spend so much time walking around Chicago looking at architecture. I love the beauty of that. But, but what happens is desire gets deformed inside of us because of sin. And, and again, if you're not a Christian, you're like, this is what I don't like about the church. Like, I don't like the idea of sin. I want you to know that it's not us pointing our fingers at you when we talk about you being a sinner because I am a sinner as well, clearly. But at the end of the day, what we're doing basically is we're describing the human condition when we talk about sin. It explains things inside of you that you may never have had explained before, and that is why you don't do the things that you want to do all the time. Why you can't just have an executive function in your decision-making. In other words, I want to do this and you accomplish it. You say, January, I want to lose some weight. You go, yeah, that's great. But by now, you're like, I'm done. Bring on the pastries. Like, what is that? That's something that's deformed inside of you and me and all of us. And so we're not judging you or condemning you for that. But it's that desire has been twisted. And so what happens when you desire beauty is that when it's twisted, it becomes lust. And it becomes, you know, things like pornography, or it becomes the transactional way in which we use each other's bodies for pleasure without any context for joy and peace and happiness. And so for some of us, it is actually security. And so beauty's good and security's good. We have this idea for security. I want security. And, 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 and God wants you to feel security, he wants to make you secure. So beauty is fulfilled in God. Security is fulfilled in God. But when you try to fulfill it yourself, what ends up happening is that you end up holding on to everything in your life because you're afraid to let go of it because it's gonna make you whole. I need to have so much money around me that I'm safe and secure. Your money has never made you safe and secure. My friends that are super wealthy, I wouldn't know this personally, but my friends who are super wealthy, um, they don't feel any more safe or more secure because they have money. What they have is maybe time. That's what money does for you. But it doesn't make you safe. It doesn't make you secure. Only God can do that for you. And so what happens when we are twisted up on the inside is we believe that our desires are fulfilled in things that they shouldn't be. And Paul says, I'm going to land my desire on God. Lewis says this, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. 
And he ends it with, we are far too easily pleased. So Christianity doesn't take desire and diminish it. It takes desire and magnifies it. Because ultimately, desire that is going to be fulfilling for you will land not on an object that can't deliver it, but one that can and only God can do that. And so, brothers and sisters, he says, my desire is going to land on this right here, which is God. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they be saved. In other words, he's an Israelite. He's watched as Israel, his people, the covenant people of Old Testament, have actually rejected the Messiah. And because of that, they no longer are connected to the Father anymore. They don't have a relationship with Yahweh. They don't have a connection with him anymore. Why? Because God said, here's my son. I love him so much that I'm willing to let him be sacrificed, mistreated, abused by you guys, us, and and hung on a tree, crucified, all of that for the sake of you being in relationship with me again. And the Israelites in the first century just walked right past it. They missed it. And many people today are missing it as well. So he identifies a problem in the first century that we have in the 21st century. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. To be saved is the word rescued. And so this series is all about being rescued. What it means for us is what, is it, what, what does it take and what does it mean for us to walk in a life that has been rescued? And what does it mean for us to think about people around us that need to be rescued? So my prayer for God is that the Israelites is that they may be saved for I can testify. This this word testify literally is like a court term. It means I'll go on record. I will give my statement about them. That's the Israelites, that they are zealous. That's the word passionate for God. So he's saying that there is a ton of worship around Rome and a ton of worship within Israel, the, the Jewish community inside of Rome, and they're trying to worship God. Their hearts are not bad. They're not like worshiping falsely. They're not worshiping some other God. They're not doing any of that. They want to worship rightly, but they miss Jesus. And because they miss Jesus, they never can worship rightly because they are passionate for God. Watch this. But their passion is not based on the right knowledge. They don't know that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Guys, this, this is a problem in the 21st century as well. I actually don't think we are seeing a diminishing of religious in, uh, interest in the world. I really don't, at least in Central Florida. We don't see, we see a diminishing sometimes of church attendance in Central Florida. Uh, but part of that is, you know, we've, we've talked about it before. It's just, it's, it's dumb decisions that we make sometimes in, as churches. It's moral failures that disappoint people. All of those kinds of things, they actually happen. And there's real reasons for why people don't want to be in the church, but they're still passionate for God. There's still people around that are like, I love Jesus. I just don't know what to do. Like, I love Jesus. But, but at the end of the day, they're not sure where to go and what to do. So in the first century, Paul identified the problem. The problem is for many people, they want to worship, they're just not worshiping correctly. And the same thing's happening with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people around us. They're interested in spiritual things and it's a legitimate interest. And yet they just don't know who Jesus is. And because they don't know who Jesus is, they really can't worship God the way that they should. And part of our job as Christians is to be a light in the world in such a way that when people look at your life, they go, wow, look at the peace in him. Look at the strength in her. These guys seem to walk differently than we do. And I can't overemphasize, and I think this is one of the big reasons why grace has been growing for a while now, and I think it's this. I think that people come and they go, I love the optimistic message that there really is hope in the world, and that our goal as Christians 
is not to join into the drama of the world around us that gets mad and divisive, but we are the happy people of God. That doesn't mean that we're always happy and that we're, we're, not, we're not up here with, you know, that's psychopathic, right? I mean, is that not true? I mean, like people are like, you know, like that kind of thing is weird and strange. It's not real. So, but we, what we are though, is we're the display case of God's glory in the world. And because of that, we have the most optimistic, positive, incredible message in the world. God has given us Jesus and Jesus has given us hope and life. Amen? Amen? I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. So God has placed eternity in the hearts of all, of all mankind. And there's something inside each and every one of us that knows that what we live right now is not everything. And so I've talked to person after person after person for 25 years as a pastor and over and over and over again, invariably, it boils down to the fact that people say to themselves, I'm not the person that I know I need to be. I'm not the person God wants me to be. And I know there's more out there. And there is more. And if you're here today and you're trying to figure out your relationship with God, but you're not doing it through Jesus, you're always gonna miss the target. And the more that God sent into the world is Jesus Christ. The love that he has for you is, it's unbreakable and it's unending. So why don't the Israelites in the first century know Jesus, or God rather? They don't know him because they miss Jesus. Take a look up on the screen, John 13, 20. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, truly, truly, I, Jesus, tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. So let's take the first part of this. So he's basically saying, hey, if I send Mike to you, right, and you receive Mike's word, you've received my word because I sent him to you. And then he flips it around on the second part of this and he says this, and whoever accepts me, Jesus, accepts the one, the father who sent me. So in order for you to be in relationship with the father, you have to accept the son. And if you were to reject the son, you have naturally rejected the father. Think about this outside of spiritual terms. Let's say the United States sends an ambassador to a foreign country and says, here are our terms and here's what we want to do. And the foreign country says, we don't want you in our country anymore and we reject you. Well, basically they've rejected what our leadership has basically said. Same thing with God. Jesus was sent into the world as God's ambassador to represent what he would look like in the flesh. That's what Jesus was, God in the flesh. And when people reject Jesus, they reject the father. They reject any relationship with God. But the problem with that is that we're always going to create our own path to God if we can't figure out the path with Jesus. Acts 4.12 says this, salvation, rescue, is found in no, other, no one else, for there is no other name about under, other than the name of Jesus under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So this is God's way of saying there is one name that will free you, that will rescue you from your sin, from yourself, and from the damage that the world has done to us. So here's the challenge. The challenge is you're going to do one of two things, right? The first thing is you're going to accept Jesus. And you're going to say, man, that's amazing. And I'll talk about the benefits of that in a second. But you're going to accept Jesus. You're going to go, that's amazing. Now I have a relationship with the Father. I'm on the right track. Or you're going to do this. And every person does this, no matter what religion they're in, even if they have no religion. And it's this. I'm going to create my own plan of rescue. And it's just building a bunch of stairs to get where I want to go eventually. Some people are trying to build a stair that leads to heaven. Other people are trying to build a stair that leads to safety. Other people are building stairs that lead to some kind of immediate gratification, so like sexuality or whatever it is. We're just building stairs, we're building stairs, we're building stairs. You know why? Because God placed eternity in your heart. 
And because of that, you have this like weird impulse that you don't even identify sometimes, but it is an impulse to worship something, to be okay, to be made whole. But if you take desire and you take that desire and it lands on something other than God, it will always, always, always betray you. It will. It will always betray you. You'll always be disappointed. You'll always feel like it didn't work out for you. Romans 10.3 says it like this. Since the Israelites did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So let's, let's start right here. We're going to talk to Christians first. Since they did not know the righteousness of God. Who is he talking about again? He's talking about the Israelites. Remember, the prayer of Paul is for his Jewish brothers and sisters, the, the race of Judaism, right? Since they did not know the righteousness of God, the Jews did not know the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God talked about here? Jesus. Since they did not know Jesus, they didn't have righteousness. So when you're building your stair and you're trying to figure out like, what, am, what do I need to do to get to heaven one day where I can stand before the Father and it's all gonna be okay? You need to understand that in building this stairway, right? In building this stairway on your own, there's gonna be a standard that's applied to you and it's not your standard. It's God's standard. Let's continue. Since they did not know the righteousness of Jesus, and therefore they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So we will always try to create our own righteousness if you don't have faith in Jesus. So the first part of that, here's the good news. If you are a Christian, you need to know the depth of which God loves you. And that is this, that he made you completely righteous in his sight. You know what that means? That means that when God looks down from heaven, even when you're blowing it and screwing up and not walking the path that he wants you to walk, even when that's happening, the father sees you as righteous. Well, what does the word righteous mean? It means right with him. It means pure, it means whole, and it means perfect. So when the father looks down from heaven, he sees his daughter, and no matter what she's doing, he says, that's my, that's my girl. She's mine. And she has Christ's righteousness applied to her. And therefore, no matter what she does, I see her as perfect. Why? Because that's what Jesus came to do. He did these two things on the cross, right? And that, the first thing that he did was he took all of our sin and it was placed on him. And then he turned it back around and he gave us all of his righteousness. So you go, well, how does that work? Hold on a second. That doesn't make any sense. You don't know what I was doing last night. I was doing all kinds of things I shouldn't have been doing last night. So how can he look at me and see that I'm sinless? Because the standard has been met already in Jesus. In other words, when we get to heaven, when we get to heaven, we're not going to go, here are the things that I did. We're going to go to, get to heaven and go, Jesus invited me here. Since they did not know the righteousness of the God, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So the only way to submit to God's righteousness is to be right with God, to be whole, to be made beautiful in his sight, is to receive Jesus. But if you've already received Jesus, know this, that when you fall down and everything, you fail, God never abandons you. I had two conversations. It's interesting. One was with a girl who's Polish and one was with a guy who's Russian. And they both said exactly the same things about their parents. It was fascinating to me. They said, they said um, both of them said that like their parents would say, um, I forgive you, but I'm never gonna forget. That's not forgiveness, right? If you are still held hostage by somebody, You've never been forgiven, right? So, so when you became a follower of Jesus, God didn't go, yes, I'm gonna forgive you your sins from the past, the present, and the future, but I'm watching you like a hawk, and if you mess up, I'm gonna destroy you. That's not what he did. He said, I'm gonna take your sin, by the way, I'm gonna throw it as far as the east is from the west. 
Like, how does that work? In other words, it no longer belongs to you anymore. You are no longer in God's sight a sinner because you have the righteousness of Jesus. And if that's true, guys, that means that you don't need to walk around constantly filled with self-condemnation when you blow it. Get over it. Get over it. And here's the reason how, and here's how you do it. Not because you go, oh, well, you know, I just, everything I did was okay. No, we were out of alignment with God. And we're saying, no, it wasn't okay. I'm going to try to get back where God is. At the end of the day, though, we say, God is still for me. You know what my kids can do for, to, to make me stop loving them? Nothing. Have you ever noticed in the weirdest of cases, you know, this person's on the news and they're being interviewed and it's the mom of some serial killer and she's going, he's a good boy. And you're like, is he? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And, uh, but you know what? It's just the mom's heart. Why? Because she sees beyond all of that. She sees other things. The father has specifically decided he's going to see other things in your life. And the things that he's going to see is the righteousness of Jesus on you. And if you've never, ever, ever become a follower of Jesus, what he sees is just your good deeds. That's all you have. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it like this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Trust. So trust is what we're talking about right now. I trust God with my life. For it is by grace you have been saved through trust. And this doesn't come from you. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, when we stand before God in judgment one day, and we've either tried to build our perfect staircase to heaven, or we come with Jesus, we don't get to come with a resume. We just don't. Like, I don't get to stand before God and go, hey, remember in like 2021, when 650 people gave their lives to Christ for the very first time? It was awesome, wasn't it? He's, I'm never going to stand there and say something like that. I'm not going to say, hey, look, we built this big church. It was awesome. No. I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to say one single thing, and it's only it. This is the only thing you can say, too. I'm here because Jesus invited me. I don't arrive because my staircase is good enough, because you know what? The standard that God applies to your staircase as you build it trying to get to heaven or trying to get to wholeness is moral perfection, which is what Jesus achieved while he was here. He was the sinless son of God. It is his sinless life that's applied to you, and it opens the door so you no longer have to walk in condemnation. There are radical statements sometimes as Christians that we forget they're so radical because we've heard them so many times. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I don't even condemn myself. I don't even judge myself. Imagine living in a world where you're not walking around with that critical voice in your head constantly condemning you and tearing you apart. Imagine you live in a world where when you disappoint someone else, you go, man, that was a bummer, and you move on. Imagine a world in which you are constantly assured that someone loves you no matter what, even if no one else loves you around you. This is what the disciples were able, this is why the disciples were able to endure hardships that were beyond what we can imagine, because they knew at the core of who they are that they, when they died, it was to die is gain, because they received Christ. And our hope for you without shame, is that you will come to know Jesus because his desire for you is that you be made whole and beautiful once again. And I, and I can promise you, as somebody who was broken and crazy dysfunctional, the Lord can transform a heart. He can make you a different person. And all he requires from you is for you to trust him. So here's a, a principle that makes it very clear, if that wasn't clear enough. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. Grace is undeserved blessing. It, it, it's divine blessing without a contribution from you. And I love this so much because it reveals the nature of true love. True love is not rose-colored glasses. 
True love happens when rose-colored glasses stop. And you look at her, and she looks at you, and you see, ugh, I married that? You know what I'm talking about? You know, like day two of marriage. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, okay. And it's not like, it's not like you, you, you do that, and then you just walk away. You go, it's too hard. Actually, what happens in real love is that you endure through that, realizing that she will never be for you what you need her to be, and he will never be for you what he needs to be, because both of those needs that you have for each other are actually needs for Jesus and not for them. And the beautiful thing about that is that you'll come with realistic expectations, but love actually is really love when it is an unconditional form of love. Verse 4 says it like this, Christ is the culmination or the fulfillment of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Guys, this is an opportunity for everyone in your family. And I love this word everyone because it's universally inclusive. And what I mean by that is this, it means that anybody who desires God, anybody who believes, anybody who believes, everyone who believes can what? Can have righteousness. And the way that that works is that to understand that Christ is the culmination or the fulfillment of the law, um, Years ago, uh, I had this real stirring in my heart to do something across the world uh, in some missions. And so I, uh, I didn't know what to do. And so I just kind of uh, started praying and I felt like the Lord laid the nation of Rwanda on us. And Grace built clean drinking water in Rwanda uh, for hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, we, it was an amazing uh, thing that we did. But I didn't know how to reach out to, I mean, who do, who do you, <laughs> I don't know anybody in Rwanda. I didn't even know where Rwanda was on the map. And uh, so I just looked up Archbishop of Rwanda, and there was a phone number there to this guy's secretary. His name is Emmanuel Kalini. And uh, he was there during the 1999 genocide, in which a million people were machetes and knives and killed each other. And it was a terrible, terrible thing. But he was a pastor over almost 2 million people uh, in Rwanda during that time. Incredible guy. So we went over there and did, did all kinds of stuff. And we stayed in the hotel called the Mil de Kalinas Hotel, which is the Hotel Rwanda that the movie is from. And uh, we stayed in that hotel, and there was this woman that was there. Me and a couple elders were on this trip, and a couple guys from the church. And she was by herself. We, she was an American. And uh, so we invite, I invited her over to the table. I said, just eat with us. And she's like, yeah, okay. So she worked for the United Nations. She was doing some stuff for the government in some way I didn't really understand, statistics and this and that. And, uh, and so she sat with us, and she talked about the fact that she was a Buddhist. And I was like, well, tell me more about that. And we learned about it, and we learned about it, we learned about it, just talked about it a little bit. And each time she would talk about different things that she liked in different religions. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, this is perfect. Why? Because Christ is the culmination of the law, of all the rules to follow in order for us to be righteous. And anyone who believes it can have it, all right? And so I was talking to her, and I said, actually, a lot of the things that you think are beautiful about religion are things that I think are beautiful about religion as well. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm one of those guys that thinks that all paths lead to God. I think th- this passage right here is fundamentally clear. There's one name under heaven by which men and women must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus, right? Um, but I do think that you can see in all kinds of different, because we're all created in the image of God, regardless of what, what religion we are, you can see little pieces of good things in each one of these things. And so I was pulling out little pieces of good things in each one of these things, and I was talking to her about it, and I said, here's what I like about Jesus, None of these other religions that you've talked about are an accurate or full picture of who God is. But Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's exactly what the Father looks like. We can't see the Father, but he is exactly what the Father looks like. So Christ is the culmination of the fulfillment of all of our desires. And just like he is the fulfillment of our desires, all of these rabbit trails of this religion and that religion and all of these things, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that everyone on the planet has ever been looking for because he is the one God, the one God that opens the door to salvation to himself through his son, Jesus, in the world. It is the most beautiful picture that when you look at this, you think, okay, Christ is the fulfillment of all that I've been looking for. And so I I, I gave her a church in Washington, D.C. because she lived in D.C. We kept in touch for a little while. She started attending that church and she became a follower of Jesus. And why is that? I think it's because because everyone that you know right now has eternity placed in their heart and they're looking for more than what they have. And because of that, we have a roadmap to the Father. And that roadmap goes through Jesus each and every time. Our solution is to point people to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbors. And I know that sometimes there's some resistance in us because we go, I don't know about him. I don't know about her. They're just so weird and strange and wicked. How's it possible? Well, your pastor was all three of those things at one point. God can transform a human heart. He can change a person. Let's skip down uh, to verse nine, if you will. His conclusion is that when we try to build a stairway to God ourselves with our own righteousness is a strategy that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for us. Verse nine says it like this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in other words, look, there's this, this is an this is a outside thing. This is an inside thing. So if you declare with your mouth, when I met my wife, Kelly, the summer, I went back before my junior and senior year at college. I just knew I loved her right away. Like I, I just did. I went back to all my friends. I was some like 19, 20 or almost 20 maybe. And uh, I came back and I told all my uh, guys, I said, hey, I found the girl that I'm going to marry. They were like, no, you didn't. And I said, well, we did. I did. I spent the summer with her. She's amazing. I love her with all my heart. Why did I do that? Because I was required, because she said, hey, make sure you go home and tell the guys. <laughs> no, no, that's not a, she, because my heart, my desire was for her. And when your desire is for something, you don't keep it here, you keep it out here, right? Have you ever, have you ever noticed that when someone is vegan, they will tell you about it? <laughs> Right, because it's in here, right? They will declare it with their mouth. Same thing with CrossFit, okay? So, you know, you know if your friend's CrossFit. So if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and it's not just an outward thing, but it's an inward thing, you believe it with all your heart, right? That God raised him from the dead, you'll be rescued. And that's just the first step, and that's all it takes, we don't say you got to stop smoking, you got to stop sleeping around, you got to do this, you got to do no no. Those are things the Holy Spirit will work in your life down the road. That's the job of God himself. Your job is to go, is it possible for me to believe? And if you've walked in lukewarm faith for a long time, you need to rediscover this. That Jesus is for you what you truly believe in your heart. And if it's not, there's something there's something twisted up. Let's get to work on it. We can figure that out. So here's how it ends. Verse 10 and 11. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, declared to be sinless before God. Walk out of here knowing when God sees me, he sees me sinless, even though I mess up all the time. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith, you are rescued. Verse 11 ends like this. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Guys, when you walk with Jesus in your life and you look back at the end of your life, you will not look back and think to yourself, man, I wish I had never walked with Christ. You know why? Because he won't put you in the position to be that situation. He will not put you in shame. You will not walk in shame anymore. And Christian, if you walk in shame right now, 
you need to go and talk to yourself about it. You are no longer under condemnation. You no longer walk in shame. And anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you have given us uh, a path to the Father. Without you, God, we would not have any access to him. And we would be stuck trying to become our own hero and savior, building a stairway that would fall well short of heaven. And so God, we pray that you would free us from the desire and the need to have to build and make our own righteousness. That is such a burden on so many of us. We walk around feeling guilty and shameful all the time because we fall short. But God, that's not your desire for us. Your desire for us is to be made whole. And so we are made whole in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would take the desires inside of us that are just kind of twisted up and land on the wrong things and not diminish them, not restrict them, but magnify them, God. Make them great. When we love beauty and we love safety, when we love security, we love strength, we love goodness, God, magnify those things in our life that we may have more of what you are because that's our heart's desire. It's in your name we pray, amen.